Ahura Janaka, Douglas Brooks here. Hope this finds you well. Earlier this week, the podcast set about to make a difficult case. It was the story of the House of Lack, a murderous tale that's set in the early stages of the epic Mahabharata. Our heroes, the Pandava and their mother Kunti, are set to be wedding guests when their cousins, the Kaurava, plot their demise by arson. They're set aflame while they sleep in a house of lack. Such a conspiracy, though both Pandava and Kaurava are still teenagers, seems implausible without the complicity and aid of their seniors. That the adults take up this treachery tells us both about the stakes of the matter and their compromised ethics. At stake, of course, is the future governance of this kingdom, that is, who shall be the future rulers. And what we learn is that it may not be a mere matter of legitimacy. Rather, it can be cast in terms of sheer temerity, hatred, the desire to steal, connive, create a proper cabal, even use the ordinary mechanisms of politics to achieve whatever they might, when perfidy and machination confront those reluctant to use power so treacherously as the Kaurava. So as we're witnessing this, of course, right before our eyes these days, we notice there are those willing to do anything to steal power, to rule by threat of violence, while those who would stand for a more principled strategy by the rule of law, they demure and they're left expressing their dignified dissent. At some point, the nihilists must be confronted, and the chance for decency, or at least for a future of decency, needs to be secured. Now, what happens in the House of Lack is that goodness is deferred, the right languishes, intrigue and confederacy assume a deeply disturbing leading role, and the outcome leaves our heroic pond of a party to a more problematic, ethically compromised, and decidedly inauspicious result. In order to survive this complot, the Pandava's most esteemed and beloved and trusted elder, Vidura, brings in the surrogates who will unwillingly, certainly without their consent, be made the sacrificial lambs of the House of Lack Inferno. There is, as I said before, not nearly enough consternation and conscience brought to this obscene, dissolute device. The poor family dies in the fire for the noble princes so that they may make their escape. This is not the best choice. This is a story about the worst choice among choices regarded to be even worse. We cannot explain this away or commend upon to the elders for their diffident morals. We find the whole matter deeply distasteful, irreconcilable, difficult to accept, impossible to find uplifting, mitigating, or consoling. There's nothing to like about this story, but that there is more story to come, and that hopefully there will be time to consider the fecklessness and the degradation of probity that warrants our reflection, perhaps a positive, particularly constructive consideration of guilt and shame. Don't count on that. And yes, guilt and shame can be constructive, even if they are never quite positive. India's traditions call this situation of the House of Lack, even its resolution, properly speaking, inauspicious for all the reasons I've already suggested. 
Now, it's hard to tell such an inauspicious story because we want to think better of our heroes and their virtuous elders, characters like the usually blameless, generous in spirit and compassionate Vidura. But none of the good guys here come out with much of anything but their lives to show for it. And that that is enough, or what is regarded necessary, that the situation has been reduced to survival that can only be won by a shiftless connivance is a feature of what is really meant by the idea of inauspicious. What we see cannot be in any way commended. It is fustian and downright indecent. There's no upside. It's the opposite of genuine, affirming, transparent, and nothing about it is inarguable but for the fact that the Pandavas live to fight another day. No one really likes an inauspicious story, and I've been fretting all week about telling this house of lack. And usually there may be rationalization, you know, the kind that justifies the unjustifiable, or for the sake of making the point that life sometimes presents us the inauspicious as the state of affairs. We have to sometimes reside in the unmistakable mire of humanity, and that leaves us wishing truly for better. Of course, here we learn that even the so-called best of us are capable and willing to be part of indefensible and unpardonable choices. The great Viktor Frankl understood this when in Man's Search for Meaning, he told us of what it took to survive the extermination camps, what good people would feel they had to do if they were to have any kind of tomorrow. And Frankl makes clear that there is less to blame, less to shame, less to criticize, than there is to feel. And what we can say is that such an inauspicious situation is not about moralism or a simple choice between right and wrong, pure or impure, but rather a kind of mournful billet. A situation will cause us to contend with ourselves in ways that bring little joy, but perhaps deeper connection to the soul. Meaning can be made of the inauspicious. But the inauspicious is no cause for a party. But if we're willing to work with it and make the inauspicious become more soul-probing, less resigned to inevitability, more capable of learning from an experience, then there is a future. There are all sorts of experiences we'd rather not learn from. Being forgiven or forgetting is always easier than learning from a mistake. We can know that the latter is the better choice, and still, we don't do the needful to turn the lessons into wisdom. Wisdom is more hard-won than we ever would want it to be. As a category that informs our human condition, the distinctions we can draw between auspicious and inauspicious are among the most constructive and important contributions of India's traditions. In the House of Lack, we learn that the inauspicious is a situation and a choice. In both senses, matters reduce to become inauspicious. In other words, what might have been options, presumably better choices, are now confined to what is before us as exigency, necessity, even inevitability. To choose the inauspicious is to assume a demonic character, that is to wish something unpropitious, to create the adverse, to project the antagonistic, and to make for an ill-spreading and even sinister situation. As Alfred Pennyworth, 
Bruce Wayne's butler explains to the wounded hero who becomes the Batman to confront his own shadows. There are worse things, because some men just want to see the world burn. The inauspicious becomes a goal unto itself, and may the gods help us. But that means the contrary can also be just as true. You see, finally we've arrived. The auspicious can also suffice as our reason, our aim, our purpose, our meaning. It can become a goal unto itself because it is not the same as success or intention. Auspiciousness is not the accomplishment. It's not even the progress. Rather, the auspicious is what brings prospect. It brings possibility to the front. It makes the urgency of life and its indefatigable desire to carry forward our guide. The auspicious is affirmation without the presumption of success. It differs from hope because it points at something, a feeling, a thought, an intention, an object, a situation, a relationship. Hope as a feeling is more abstract, it's more wish-projecting. But the auspicious means to highlight the sacred. How can we experience time and place and identity with better motive and more conscious perspective? What makes the idea so useful for living is that auspicious becomes a way of dealing with things, not merely a response to a given set of factors or a situation. Auspicious is present, and it cannot be denied because it is the very fact that denial is its own affirmation. My teacher Appa called it radical affirmation, not reducible to positive thinking, wish-casting, hoping, or merely projecting shiny objectification onto images magically transformed into fluffy unicorns because we wish them so. The auspicious instead is a process, first of recognition and receptivity, then of relationship, and at last instantiation, making it real. Not all things we receive that are given to us can be generated, but this is a feature of the auspicious. What we receive is an urgent, irrepressible need, a grace-filled and clamorous declaration from the universe that yes, we live, that the heart beats, that the breath reaches for its next breath. The demand and the imperative is itself the auspicious. It is reaching for life, for itself, for well-being. It is leading us forward and into the fray that existence is seeking to experience itself. In this sense, the auspicious is intrinsic. It is built into our being, and that's why it is to be regarded as swabhava, our own nature, our own being. Life wants to live, and that affirmation is a receptivity and a generative force. When the auspicious assumes this form, it is called in Sanskrit Sri, and Sri, of course, names a goddess and is the most distinctive feature of the feminine encoded universe because it is the innate, natural, instinctive, and inherent standard of life seeking itself. Sharia is recursive because the instruction to affirm is built into the instructions. It does not come from outside itself, for the world as Sharia, as the auspicious, births the world that births, and that world turns and twists of its own accord. Sharia is unacquired in its first instance, because we were made from this affirmation. 
from the universe collecting information to assert an elemental coherence. The world may not hold together for long, but the taking up of the possibility, the possibility at all that it does, this is auspiciousness as first category. It's there. It's real. It's happening, no matter what we might claim. Shri is the congenital state of life. It's principal instruction to persist, repeat, reclaim, insist on being. Shri doesn't need to look outside itself in order to be itself. The auspicious is self-affirming, self-professing, self-attesting. It's right there with life and it pursues its own recursive functionality. Shri is built into the program. The auspicious is the code that writes next, more, and yes to every beating heart. The first story I'd like to tell as we explore further the auspicious, now that our House of Lack story made so vivid its inverse, the inauspicious, that's the love story called Hidimba. It comes right on the heels of the House of Lack as the Pandava escape into the forest only to find themselves in what is called Abhutamandalam, a circle of ghosts. The Bhutamandalam surrounds them. It is a circle of shadows, unknown predators, hidden adversaries, hungry demons, and ambivalent dangers that test courage, invoke anxiety, foster apprehension, elevate our consideration that makes for dread and jitters and misgivings. The forest is not a safe place. Sounds pretty darn inauspicious. But the auspicious will take that Bhutamandala, that ghostly circle, and it will invite us to build an inner fire, to take our rest near the warm light, to entrust our sleep to those who secure our safety, to reach within ourselves for the resource and the temerity to deal with whatever comes to surround us. The auspicious is watchfulness with courage to face what might come before, but it is also the inner collectedness that life blesses. It doesn't only burden that we're here for gratitude, for celebration, for a warm embrace of what comes from deep inside a yearning body and an anxious soul. Tending the fire in this dangerous forest is, of course, Bhima, a giant of a man, huge of appetites, big-hearted, unhindered by too much thinking, untroubled by his own size and weight and feelings and nature. Bhima comes by his auspiciousness with a certain naturalist aplomb. He is very good at being himself, and no character is so at ease with being in his own skin as Bhima. He is not too comfortable, nor complacent, but he is untroubled by the way he was made, and he's determined to make more of himself without pretense or much self-inflicted doubt. Bhima has an organic relationship to his own auspiciousness. May we... And this he projects onto his brothers. May we have such friends. And indeed, onto everything he encounters. Now, he can be quick to anger, but in such an organic man, we can excuse him from the auspiciousness of patience when it is immediacy without angst, spontaneity without apprehension. What is auspicious about Bhima is not the same as what we find in his deliberative, introspective brother Yudhishthira. 
And what we learn in the difference between them is that the auspicious cannot be separated from its natural condition. Thus, the auspicious is instinctively passionate in Bhima, while it is reflexively prudent in Yudhishthira. So on this night, the Pandava, exhausted and camped in a grove of shala trees, known to be the refuge of those who would spy safely from their redoubts in breach and canopy, they are being guarded, as usual, by the nocturnal Bhima. Now one could argue that Bhima fears no darkness because he is undaunted by his own shadows, not because he is at all interested in exploring them, but because they too come naturally to him. This hero shows us the full extent of the auspicious as an unplanned, an unpremeditated kind of exaltation of ordinary living. Living unruffled by a ruffled world is indeed a heroic stance made of Bhima's auspiciousness. Now, little does Bhima know that a demon named Hidimba is living in the shala tree not far from the wood, and that Hidimba has smelled out the Pandava. He is hungry, powerful, strong, yellow-eyed, and tusked. And as far as the humans are concerned, he is described as loathsome to the eye. He needs a haircut. He could stand to see a dentist, including the fangs. And he has a particular taste for human flesh. He also has a sister who he bosses about, but who shares many of his tastes. We don't get a full description of her as a demoness, but there's no reason to believe that she doesn't look like her brother. We'll return to that in due time. Hidimba's sister could be named Hidimbi, since that would be a proper feminine form of the Sanskrit. But instead, she is called Hidimba, Hidimba and Hidimba. So we are led to believe that they are more like twins. We might then expect them to see the world as another world, perhaps normally the case. However, Hidimba, the demoness, carrying out her brother's bullying, order to stalk the Pandavas, while he prepares to, quote, bite into their delicious flesh, get on their human throats, cut their artery, and guzzle the plentiful, fresh, warm, foaming blood, Sorry for all that, but that's what the text says. We are headed towards the auspicious. But no sooner did Hidimba see Bhimasena than she was utterly smitten. He is, after all, tall like a shala tree. Hmm, exactly where and in what respect he is tall. She finds him of matchless beauty. That is, if you think a giant hairy wolf belly of a man holding a club is your idea of tender attraction. And she immediately falls in love. That this love is certainly lust is itself auspicious, because she is, after all, a rakshasi, a demon, not made to be demurely self-concealed, no wilting flower, nothing shy about her, and her auspiciousness, like all auspiciousness, is an affirmation of authenticity, of unflustered desire. She does calculate that if she eats him, literally, literally, then she and her brother will only be sated for less than an hour, such as the enormity of their hunger. But if she um, eats him less than literally, then, quote, I'll be pleasured for years without end. Hmm. Apparently, she thinks well of Bhima's endowments and their prospective future. This, too, is auspicious. Next, we learn that much like other rakshasas, demons, 
She is a shapeshifter with the power to assume any form she desires, and so she becomes a beautiful human shape and, quote, very softly approached Bhima like a bashful creeper. Now, just what such an innocent lovely would be doing in a dangerous forest in the middle of the night is not fully explained, but this is mythology. Perhaps it's because she says to Bhima, quote, where have you come from and who are you, even before he can react? She goes on to ask about Kunti, Bhima's mother who sleeps peacefully beside the fire, perhaps mistaking her for his wife. Does she not know that this wilderness is inhabited by the flesh-eating demon Hidimba? She immediately reveals that this is her brother and that he is nigh upon them, and she lets it all out when she says, quote, My body and heart are seized by lust. I love you, so love me. I will save you, and you can be my lover, my husband, happily in the fastness of the mountains. Clearly, Hidimba's auspiciousness extends to every detail of wild sex and incomparable domestic bliss. Bhima protests only that he would not abandon his family, not even for a chance like this. And Hidimba says to wake them all. She will save them from her brother. And Bhima says, well, he can take care of the brother. No need to disturb their peaceful sleep. In the meantime, brother Hidimba, noticing his sister Hidimba, is tardy, tardy in reporting back to him. He descends from his shala tree. Hidimba hears him and warns Bhima, whose nonchalance is no mere vanity. Auspiciousness knows no hubris, nor does it overstate one's abilities. Auspiciousness is knowing one's gifts and staying in your heart and having the courage to manifest what you've been offered. The demon Hidimba, meanwhile, arrives and notices that his sister has taken on a beautiful human form and, quote, is wearing a very sheer robe. It really does say that. He suspects now his sister's true desire to be Bhima, becomes enraged and announces his desire to eliminate them all, including his sister, and Bhima proclaims Hidimba's auspiciousness when he says, you told her to come, and when she saw my beauty, the bashful girl just fell in love. Where the bodiless God is, there is no blame. That bodiless God is Kama, desire. And there is no blame, only auspiciousness when it comes honestly. Hidimba, for his part as a brother, is charged by tradition to support his sister's choices particularly in love, since the alliance between brother and sister and sister's husband creates another auspicious possibility. You see, the auspicious makes for a positive future. So any child of this liaison is necessarily to the benefit of the brother who would be uncle, his sister who would enjoy motherhood, and the brother-in-law father whose child has uncle's protection and mother love. Now that is auspiciousness. See how it surrounds us in a circle of affirmation. We're not being burned in a house of lock. The Buddha Mandalam is now the circle of affirmation, the circle of protection, of lust, love, and ecstasy, supporting mutually the desires and needs of those who choose the auspicious. Now, when the veritable force of Sri is a natural phenomenon, intrinsic to nature, when that manifests in relationships like this one, 
sister, brother, husband, future child. In these relationships, auspiciousness is now called mangala. Mangala is Shri in relationships, in dynamics of power that bring affirmation and benefit to all within those relationships. But at last, Hidimba, the Rakshasa demon, does not support his sister's choices, but only his own appetites, and so he refuses the Mangala relationship. The choice here for the auspicious is rejected. Mangala is auspiciousness chosen or rejected, and that's at least in part our defining issue. Remember, Hidimba is a flesh-eating demon, and so is his sister Hidimba. They are demons, but the one chooses the inauspicious path that rejects the dynamics of Mangala, a mutually beneficial relationship, and the other, his sister, wants a lover and a family, and by rights should be supported by her brother. All of this is Mangala. As you would suspect, things are going to go poorly for Hidimba from this point forward. Bhima still doesn't want to disturb his sleeping family, so the battle proceeds some distance from camp. By the time Mother Kunti and the other Pandava awaken to the noise, the battle is well underway, and Hidimba is asked about her identity from Kunti. Kunti says, what's a lovely girl like you doing in a place like this? Now that too is a question about auspiciousness, albeit a bit leading, but nonetheless... Aurakshasi Hadimba admits that she came with her brother to eat their flesh, but then she saw the golden-hued Bhima and had other ideas. Yudhishthira, Arjuna, and the twins Nakula and Sadeva, the Pandava, they rush to help their brother Bhima engaged with the horrific demon, but they are dismissed, and Bhima effectively tells them to go back to bed, that he's got this, and he's rather indignant about it at that. But Bhima's no fool and he still suspects that the innocent Hidimba is not so innocent. But Yudhishthira intervenes to say that even if she were being crafty or duplicitous, or even if she would just resort to being a demon again, she could do no harm to the mighty Pandava. Yudhishthira declares in truly auspicious form that Hidimba has her own right to life and must not be harmed if she does no harm. That is the auspiciousness taking the form of justice, mercy, gentility, sober choice. That's Yudhishthira's auspiciousness. Hidimba then asks Kunti mother for permission to have her son in love. She says, merit preserves life, for merit is a lifesaver. And so another example of auspiciousness as a principle, as a way of living, as a choice we can make in relationship. And then she promises herself to be true. Now this is called badra, the third form of auspiciousness. Badra is when the auspicious gets particular, when it gets personal. So let's make sure we understand this. Shri is the auspicious that is intrinsic. It's the universe in affirmation of itself. It's life collecting around the power that holds together and falls apart. It's a feature of the goddess's own nature. To put it in symbolic deity language, it's the presence that reveals itself in every living thing's desire to live. In the story of Hidimba, the Rakshasi, it is her self-affirmation of feelings for Bhima. They are organic, lusty, going so far as to doom her twin brother, demon, but she is a form of her own Shri. She is an affirmation of her nature, and it makes her joyful, 
It projects a future. It celebrates her feelings. It tells her she's really alive and that life for all of its travails and complications is well worth the living. That same principle of Sri is Bhima's natural courage, his undaunted confidence in his genuine abilities, his willingness to reach inside himself and confirm how he feels. Now, Mangala appears in the relationship that the Pandavas share with each other. It's in the dynamics of their concerns. It's in the intimacy that roars ferociously to assert their respective gifts. It adds value to each and every one of them for their relationship to each other. It confers the blessings of autonomy. It furs from manipulation or control. Mangala is the relational auspicious, the one that causes us to confirm not only our own interests, but to acknowledge those of others and to grant them their positivities. In Hidimba, it is her clear pronouncements of fealty, her genuineness towards her love Bhima, and the projection she offers on his family. Kunti comes forward to endorse the relationship. This is also auspicious, because her position as mother, and now as mother-in-law, so to speak, is a powerful authorization of the relationship's positive benefits. It speaks to its legitimacy, to its openness, and so it is a certification from one tree to another. Now, Bhadra appears in the individuals, and of course, it is the most problematic in the Rakshasi Hidimba. She not only shapeshifts to win Bhima's eye, manipulation is not auspiciousness, she agrees to see her brother crushed by her lover, albeit because, as we've explained, there's been every kind of bad brother behavior short of incest. Hidimba the demon deserves no better, though this being a cross-species love affair between a heroic human and a demoness, it's hard not to find strange and mysterious forms of love and loss and identity, and alas, a more complicated auspiciousness when it comes down to the individuals. Yudhishthira sanctions the marriage, and he tells Hidimba that she can sport with his brother day by day, but that he must come back safely at night to guard the fire as he always has. In Sanskrit, we find a beautiful passage. Three verses, a run-on sentence. It reads, In the secret corners of the woods, on mountain ridges blossoming with trees, by lovely ponds abloom with lotus and water lily. On river islands and mountain streams with sandbars of beryl, where fords and woods and water were pure, or on lands in the ocean that were heaped with pearls and gold, in charming villages or stands of tall shala trees, in sacred forests of the gods, on mountain cliffs, in the inhabitants of the caves and the retreats of ascetics, and by the waters of the lake Manasa, where the mind resides with the heart, there in fruit and flower in all the seasons." She, the demoness, assumed a superb body and made love to the Pandava, and she loved Bhima everywhere, nimble as thought, and the Rakshasi gave birth to a son by the powerful Bhima Sena. This ultimate culmination of auspiciousness is the birth of Gatogacha, whose name is just fun to say. Gatogacha is the son of Hidimba by Bhima, and he will certainly bring him credit 
and love. And Gatogacha's ultimate sacrifice in the war is ahead of us. And here he'll sacrifice his own life to save that of his uncle, Arjuna. It is poignant, it's sad, it's honest, it's real. His death is inauspicious, but it makes for auspiciousness because it is an ultimate sacrifice to what is good. It is principled even at the cost of his own life. Gatogacha transforms the inauspicious into the most auspicious gift, a life for life. And so that's the story. Auspiciousness is what makes life urgent and worth living. It's what makes love worth having. It makes sex a beautiful, consensual fest. And the death for the sake of principle and goodness and a courageous heart worth all that. Auspiciousness trounces inauspiciousness. They are never on parity, while the crisis of life always puts us in the precarious situation of potential deficits and paybacks, there's entropy and unraveling chaos. The auspicious is what asserts that life will not be stopped, that there is an insistence in evolution, progress and forward aspiration, that there is a deep desire for a future. This is why Sri and Mangala and Bhadra are cast in feminine codes symbolically. They all stand for the auspicious as creative, generative, recursive and receptive of whatever happens with a vision of making a future, that of declaring that life and love cannot be stopped. It is the goddess's destiny. Now we'll have more to say about the auspicious and what happens when it encodes as masculine, particularly in the word and character of Shiva, but more on that later. I hope you found this time worthwhile and our foray into auspiciousness, um, an entree into practice and practicality in your own life. If you enjoy the podcast, um, do let me know, drop me a note. And um, if you haven't subscribed, uh, please do. And if you can pledge support, then our work continues forward. Everything goes to an auspicious cause. You have my word. Thanks again, Rajanika. Thanks for your time. And thanks always for being such auspicious friends. <laughs>